What's going on, everybody? This is the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast, where myself and my friend examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with secret de-evolution kill switches. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I am a NVIDIA GTX 4090 Ti Founders Edition. That's hot stuff, Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade Chronicles alongside these episodes, where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode, we're discussing chapter 16 holy crap nate our chapters can now drive a car i like that actually yeah so this is a pretty momentous chapter a pretty crazy chapter but it's also kind of like xeno gears disc 2-esque chapter so i'm gonna say right off the bat i mean we talked about our content last week so we don't really need to get back into that this is a chapter where there are two boss fights that are unwinnable boss fights they're more so just like cutscene boss fights Mm -hmm. than a lot of cutscenes so we're gonna break it down we're gonna give our analysis yes and watching it on YouTube is about the same experience as we had in the game. This chapter is, I don't know, 45 minutes long. It is predominantly cutscenes. It was like, we made a joke about, hey, this isn't an anime review podcast, but tonight it is. I will give some analysis and commentary on my reaction to it to kind of break that up instead of just recapping events to you. Oh, yeah. But we have questions, too. We have we have wonderings. We have big wonderings. Nate, how's it hanging, man? I'm good. In our Discord, I recently posted a picture of me with a bandana on and a mustache and longer-ish hair. And I said that I was actually a Dixon fan the whole time. That's not true. I shaved the mustache. It was getting too itchy. Besides that, I've been reorganizing my storage shed and pulling out games that I may want to play now that we're wrapping this up and getting into other things. And so I have the Wii U all unboxed and ready to go. for the two games left on it that I have that aren't on other things, which are Zelda Twilight Princess HD and Wind Waker HD. Cool. And then also Xenoblade Chronicles X. Those are the only two things I own for the Wii U that aren't on the Nintendo Switch or have been re-released on the Nintendo Switch yet. So I don't know why Monolith Soth won't do that. Maybe it's one of these things where they saw like the sales numbers and thought, no, it's not worth it. But you have to remember that was on the fucking Wii you guys if you re-release that on switch that thing's gonna print money for you have you played very much of xenoblade chronicles x no i might get into that a little bit more on my own at some point on this podcast if i decide to kind of give my breakdown on it but long story short i got it as a christmas present that was preceding the year in which i began moving all over the place for the sake of the united states navy so it's perpetually remained in a storage bin along with the wii u itself after that christmas and so i thought hey maybe now's the time that i've been enjoying xeno content for the last year and a half nice man uh in my world in video games my steam deck came in a week ago today and i've been uh getting to you know i'm getting acquainted with it it's a pretty neat piece of equipment you've got it's basically a laptop squeezed into a switch with better hardware my god it has 15 gigs of ram my pc has 16 i mean that's extraordinary i got the premium model i've got an extra tb of space and an ssd card feeling pretty slick right now um getting to know the emulation side of things as well and it's pretty powerful so i played some pretty some uh, neat games on it some of the ones that are pushing the hardware limits some are more classic titles like the final fantasy 6 
pixel remaster. I got this funny idea to do another challenge run. So I've done the natural magic run for Final Fantasy VI, but there's a CES run. And what CES stands for is Celeste, Edgar, Setzer. And what you do is you finish the game with just those three characters. Why just those three characters? Aren't there 14 playable characters in Final Fantasy VI? It's an ensemble cast. Yes. Well, that's the minimum you need to beat the games. Uh, when the party kind of disperses halfway through the game, you start with one, you pick up another, and then the third one grants you access to the airship, and the airship will take you to the final dungeon at any time. Although when you have these three characters you in the CES run, you power them up to be extraordinary. And it's especially challenging for the final dungeon because they're not all together in the same party in the final dungeon. In Kefka's Tower, final dungeon of the game, your party splits up into three parties of four. Not only do you want to level people up to be able to finish the game at all, they're each navigating different sections of the final dungeon alone. I'm picturing doing that for Final Fantasy VI. That sounds crazy. It is crazy, yeah. There are exploitive strats that you can use. Um, so Celeste turns into your like mage, and she's got the runic ability in which you, for a turn, any magic that's cast, she absorbs, takes no damage, and gets refunded magic points cost of the spell that was cast. You kind of use that to absorb spells. Setzer's got this weapon that doesn't deal damage through like attack power, but it does a random number of, of uh, he throws four dice, and then depending on the sum of all the numbers, plus other bits of the algorithm, it, it he can throw out a lot of damage, and then you put another relic on him where he throws it those dice four times, so he can do like 40,000 damage in a turn and then edgar becomes like a dragoon who exploits like leaving the battle like physically in the air to avoid certain catastrophic spells anyways there's a whole strat to it looking forward to learning it nice yeah that sounds like fun one one last thing i'll say before we get into it you recently you've been listening to the resident arc podcast sure have one of our inspirations for doing what we do and enjoying what we do is those guys and they're doing xeno saga currently is there any xeno tidbits you've gotten from their current run through that game series that are applicable to us and what we're doing right now oh what a good question not in any major ways there are thematic moments that resonate in gears and in blade for example the golden godly tablet is present the zohar and things shaped like the zohar and don't just mean emulators like there's apparel that is kind of cut in a way that reflects the shape of the zohar much more hard science fiction not like star warsy science fiction but like really deep complicated math physics astrophysics theoretical physics concepts that are absent in Blade and, and only kind of hinted at in Gears. Uh, so um, it's it's a deeper dive. It's a tough text to swallow. And I'm so pleased to listen to other thoughtful folks uh, break it down for me rather than play it myself. Although I probably could go onto YouTube and look up Xeno Saga Episode 1, Zerwildermacht, the movie as well. I'm sure it's up there. I haven't looked. Yeah, you definitely could, and you might have the same enjoyment level as if you were playing the game itself, because I just remember being absolutely inundated with cutscenes and clamoring for moments of gameplay and expression and even like the dungeons themselves felt very railsy to me oh no playing that series having that be my introduction to xenoblade i the only reason i had it was it was on sale for ten dollars at menards during christmas Mm. when they briefly got into a stint of trying to sell video games failed miserably and then everything was on discount wow so i got a 
it for 10 bucks and I tried playing it. And that may have been what put me off from playing Xeno Gears for so long. And it wasn't bad by any means. I was doing my best to enjoy it. It was a big shock playing it against a game like Final Fantasy X or let's see, what other RPG did I have for PS2 at the time? The Bouncer. The Bouncer. <laughs> I own The Bouncer, but it's not necessarily an RPG. No, it's not an RPG. Kingdom Hearts? Yeah, Kingdom Hearts, I had that, but Dark Cloud, is that considered an RPG? It's more of like a dungeon crawler game. I don't know, I've never played it. All that to say, it just didn't stick with me, and I think I actually owned Xenosaga 2 at one point as well. Maybe <laughs> some motivation to finish the first one that just never happened. I got, let's say I got 75% of the way through number one, and then a roommate of mine played number two in my presence for quite a bit, because he had finished number one and was looking to play my copy of number two. I kind of want to go back and give it a shot again and see what happens after we've finished this whole journey, but I like the typical amount of gameplay I get from Xenoblade Chronicles, this chapter notwithstanding. (laughs) I agree, yes. You ready to get into this? We'll need a cleansing game of Heroes of the Storm after. I'm going to do this episode shirtless. Are you doing the breastfeeding? (laughs) Definitely not. So let's get into this, shall we? We shall. We shall. This chapter picks up in medias res. You already know what that means because I described it at about this time last episode. We are right back where we were. Shulk has a hole blown through his chest from Dixon. Dixon's done a heel turn. He's betrayed the party and we're like, what the the heck is going on here? Dunbin and Dunbin and Ryan cry out Shulk's name and Shulk falls off of Yaldaboy. Yaldaboy catches Shulk as he falls off the gold mech on his shoulder and we need some answers, Dixon. We see him grinning, still holding that rifle forward as the scene pulls in. And for a plan that like was seemingly foiled by Shulk's decision to not kill Egil, he seems to be taking it in stride. So there's probably a bigger plan that's about to unfold here, and we'll obviously get into that. Or maybe it's just that Dixon enjoys violence in all its forms because he's giving a, a smile at what's about to play out here. And he is a weapons man so I don't know did we haven't seen him wield this he was either on a Havres flying around doing flips and or just kind of talking to us is the last time we saw him actually wield this weapon outside of the ether mines way back when yeah I think so I think so because even if he even though he's with us in the Satoral Marsh he didn't really do anything he was just kind of hanging out mm-hmm. yeah that's right Dunman shouts Dixon why Ryan follows with are you out of your mind for me, these are these are very anime reactions. I'm gonna give a little tip here on if you're writing characters and you want characters to sound like human beings, you have to consider the fact that like these proclamations are designed as prompts for exposition. And so an entry level analyzer of dialogue and scene might not pick up on this, but somebody who spends their time writing and thinking about these things realizes that like the Dixon Y and the Are You Out of Your Mind, those are prompts for Dixon to deliver an explanation to you. Whereas a real person seeing an ally shoot one of their closest friends would just immediately go into like animal instinct survival mode. Because if you if you saw a friend shot by somebody you trusted, your brain would immediately think, am I next? Oh my God, you're right. Am I the next person to be shot by this person I previously trusted? Yeah. So th- there's that element of you would go into survival mode. You 
wouldn't be talking or questioning or be like, did your finger slip, huh? Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd either A, run, or B, move to assault the assailant to procure your own safety immediately. It's one of humanity's primary negative features that comes out. Our survival instincts lead us to always trend towards fight or flight, even when it, it defies logic. So that's just a little nitpick on the scene here. Um, and it, it kind of plays out multiple times as the scene progresses. Right. And Fiora, who does have the power to produce a red force field around her allies, uh, chooses not to. Instead, she says, well, who are you? Who are you, Dixon? Like he's not really Dixon. We cut to a grayscale flashback of not yet Zanza. What was his name? Arglas? Arglas. Arglas. Arglath from Final Fantasy Tactics. Picking up the Monado and becoming Zanza. And next to him is another giant. This one is darker, grimmer, has black or very, very dark purple scars or tattoos all over his body. And you know what? It's got Dixon's mustache. It looks like Dixon. And I don't know if this this is like a scene of betrayal or like Dixon, whoever he is, leading Arglis into ambush to be taken over by Zanza, but it might be fueled out of jealousy for Arglis having an absolutely impeccable beard and all Dixon can muster is this little patch of fuzz on his upper lip. That's pretty interesting, like a analogous to a Cain and Abel sort of story, but instead of Cain slaying Abel, Cain brainwashes Abel with <laughs> with the spirit of God. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Yeah, uh, in general, it, it kind of leads to the question, the, like the timeline of what's happening. So we see Arglis wielding the Monado. That means he's at that point Zanza. And we see another giant male lurking in the background and that's Dixon as we surmise in this sequence of events Dixon mentions that he is Zanza's disciple and he also mentions that it's been a long time in regards to Egil. It suggests that there was a period where Arglis was Zanza. Egil knew he was Zanza and not Arglis. Zanza had a disciple that was also a giant person and Egil somewhat treated with them in enough capacity for them to have like a cordial relationship for them to say been a long time. If it was Zanza and Dixon interacting with Egil negatively, it would just be this antagonistic thing, wouldn't you think? I don't know. Am I reading into that incorrectly? Mm-hmm. I think it was... There was a time where he, no, where Arglis was just Arglis, and then Zanza, as Bionis, waged war with Mechanis, and then when they neutralized one another, went into the micro Monado sword, which Zanza grabbed, and whether or not he grabbed it of his own volition or was manipulated, steered by Giant Dixon, I couldn't say, but when that happened, he became one with the Monado then and became Zanza. That's my read on it. Yeah, and then there's just that detail of previous chapters, like we've seen a grave of, or like a tomb of a giant that had a Monado ability in there. So were there giants researching Monado shit before Arglis interacted with it? Like, were they kind of poking and prodding at it, thinking about it, researching it beforehand until Dixon was finally like, hey, bro, you should just go grab it. Like, just go pick it up. (laughs) Stop, stop looking at it and just pick it up. (laughs) I don't know because there seems to be knowledge about it or is it post Zanza like in the Zanza era that all these giants came together 
we're like, okay, we're going to make this thing even better. I would love to see scenes like that. We've only ever seen one giant at a time. He's not in like this, this Dixon giant isn't in any of the flashbacks. I went back and I looked at the hologram scene in Agnaratha and the flashbacks when Shulk and Egil are having their heart to heart at the end of the last episode. In neither of those was there a giant lurking in a corner. I feel like this is cheating at storytelling. By the way, by the way, Nate, how did giant... Dixon become Hom Dixon. How did Giant Dixon have a typical Hom's voice and speak like that instead of big, magical, godlike Zanza voice? There's no explanation for this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's going to be a little bit of an ass pull, like, yeah, via ether, I can do it. <laughs> like, that's just me. I think it's just going to be the ether did it. The ether did it. That's a that's kind of the the MO of this game. I'm not saying that as a complaint because they do a good job of having a singular, all-encompassing source for certain things. But then you can also get into that danger where the the Metal Gear series, they they introduced in Metal Gear Solid 2 the idea of nano machines, and it was cool and they used it in interesting ways, but that became the crutch that the creator leaned on for everything. Whenever he needed to explain something, well, how did this happen? Nano machines, sir. Oh, well, we did it via nano machines that can just uh regenerate your half your fucking body. They hide in response to physical trauma. What are you talking about? Nanomachines. You can't hurt me, Jack. Nice. I'm going to go with Ether. Great. You're going to go with Ether. But you know what Dixon says? He says, I don't have to explain anything. I don't have to explain anything. And I LOL'd. <laughs> I did laugh out loud because as I'm, cause I'm pausing as the scene is playing out, I'm writing my questions and my musings and my frustrations about, well, how does this make any sense? <laughs> and Takahashi is speaking through Dixon right at me. I don't have to explain anything. Yes. It's like in a game overwrought with exposition where you have your regular Monado class session every chapter. He's like, okay, I've been writing so much. I, I just, just let me be. Let me, I don't have any exposition for this one. Shut up and enjoy the roller coaster. I typically go that route because it's like you could just leave the he could have left the door open on a lot more things in this game. And then if they really need to be answered later, that's what sequels are for, bro. Pull it out in a sequel. While Dixon monologues, Shulk seizes in place and his eyes roll back into his head. Dixon heralds the moment of Lord Zanza's return. Shulk floats off the ground and begins glowing white. Eggle says, Zanza won't let you do this. Casts a spell, a protective spell on Shulk, but that is dispelled by Dixon, I believe. I went back and looked at the scene again, and it's Shulk deflecting the shot, not Dixon. Shulk's head is sunk forward in this body language that, that's kind of like I'm possessed or I'm zombified. And then the model of a Shulk doppelganger appears on top of Shulk, like overlaid on his model, and then separates from him. The double is wearing glowing white armor with yellow trimming. Shulk falls limp to the ground. Of course, he's got that hole in his chest still. While his golden angel variation floats upwards, holding the Monado, he sprouts these divine glowing runes that take the shape of the angel wings and a halo above his head that appear over his shoulders, like glowing, moving, rotating, orbiting 
runes. And he says, everything in its world is dictated by the passage of fate. I, the Monado, is the origin. Do not be surprised. Everything in this world is dictated by the passage of fate. As all that exists is interconnected, time can flow only towards the inevitable. That is the vision of which I, the Monado, am the origin. That which will be, will be. This was all predestined. This Super Shulk is the Monado. This is Zanza. Zanza is the spirit of the Monado, and they are the blade and the spirit are one again. A literal Monado boy splits from our Monado boy. A Monado man. A Monado angel. He's not a one-to-one -one copy of Shulk. He's actually got longer hair, less unkempt, more like flowing straight downwards as maybe somebody unsullied by sweat and oil affecting the volume of his hair. Whenever they zoom into him, he's got a little bit of a, he's got a smaller pupil size, making him look a little bit more unhinged, a little more crazy than regular ass Shulk. But yeah, that quote that you gave, the he says, time can only flow towards the inevitable. That is the vision of which I, the Monado, am the origin. So vision is a word that suggests sight. Sight that begat an origin. So to me, that dialogue suggests that the Monado itself is someone's creation. Because if you have a vision for something or you want it to happen, you do something about that. And in this case, this being is the vision of, I guess we'll just put it plainly, like predestination. That That's a religious term that maybe I can delve into a little bit here if, if that's of interest. Oh, absolutely. Because it's like all of this exposition, well, we're nearing the end of the game, so it's funny to call this exposition, but all of the Monado philosophization that, that he spouts is all of these absolutes, these impossible, I'm in control of everything, whatever you're aiming for is completely impossible, there's no room for whatever you wanted to do in this game, in this plot, in this conflict anymore, there's only me. The walls are closing in on our heroes. Definitely. Now, there's... The Monado is a reference to Monad, which is like Gnosticism, which is like a take on both Hebrew religion and Christianity in certain ways. Mm -hmm. That's a very light and probably wrong telling of that on my part, because honestly, I don't have the desire to do a deep dive research on that for you guys listening. And there will be other channels that possibly can do that for you. But that's not really why I play games there's a certain crowd out of the people out there that love the like did you get that reference type of writing and gaming and like what it alludes to and what it's talking about but for me it's like i like the work to stand on its own and this is certainly doing that this is doing a great job of that the closest thing i could really point to it in my own experiences is there's a religious following of calvinism i don't know if you've heard that term before i have yeah and uh thomas hobbs calvin and hobbs no What's the what's the guy's full name? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to do a deep dive on this. So uh, <laughs> basically, uh, Calvin was a Christian evangelist that put forth the idea that predestination exists, that basically, you know, you can do what you want, but God is going to do what he wills. And your whether you're going to heaven or hell is already predetermined by him. And so there's definitely this belief like within the Bible of the chosen ones. Mm hmm. Who's going to heaven and is going to be with God? He's already picked that. Your name's in a book. And there are passages that 
absolutely say that. So I can see where he gets it from. But there's also like an ontological question of, well, if that's the case, then why does anything I do or any decision I make even fucking matter? And it kind of unravels the sweater of like all of life if you come to that conclusion. So this game is doing a pretty good job of representing that belief system in a way because the Monado, Zanza, he's kind of postulating here that everything arrived at this moment no matter what and it's almost like maybe Dixon is on those puppet strings as well and he can't see the full picture even though he's Zanza's disciple he doesn't have vision of the picture because originally Dixon was leading us here to kill Agil or to do some sort of act and Dixon himself had to course correct by doing that bullet to the chest right Mm -hmm. maybe there's this thing of there is fate and even if you deny fate, fate is going to course correct around you and make what it wants to happen happen anyway. And so that's another way to look at it. I think we've encountered those ideas in Chrono Cross as well. <laughs> Essentially the fate machine sure. that lurks under everything. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's interesting. But it brings up so many questions on like <laughs> what's been happening in the plot. For example, like does, did Dixon's bullet have a like special property that summons forth Zanza out of Shulk, like a break glass if Zanza not summoned property. That's interesting. If it's just Shulk's death, then there were multiple scenarios that Dixon put me in specifically that could have murdered me, like murdered a quaint young boy named Shulk that would have just released Zanza at a completely inopportune time. It kind of begs the question like, hey, Dixon, you should have been like sitting there holding this child's hand throughout the entire experience Mm -hmm. and not just being like, eh, he'll he'll be fine. You know, so it begs that question of like, does Dixon have the vision? Does he know what's going to play out as Don's disciple or is he just course correcting and kind of guiding the hand as best he can the whole time? That's the end of that rant. That's the end of that rant. Maineth reminds us that when Zanza was imprisoned, the Monado was separated from him. We weren't imprisoning the Monado, we were imprisoning the spirit of Zanza within the shackled giant. Maineth puts that question to rest. And then Dunban asks, well, what does all of this have to do with Shulk? And Dixon alludes that he didn't just discover Shulk at Osei Tower, where the Monado was held at um, Valak Mountain. He followed them there to help release the Monado. There was never anyone named Shulk to begin with. In fact, there was never anyone called Shulk to begin with. Oh shit, hard left turn into protagonist's horrific existential crisis moment. Play the Final Fantasy VII introspective nightmare music. Yeah, well, I'll I'll leave you to do that, (laughs) that, because you know what track you're talking about. Load it up ahead of time so that you have it on, on your cruise. Nate, that is not even close to the right song. Who left you in charge of editing the episode while I was out of town? Oh, right. You remember when uh, Tifa's walking around his mind and giant, translucent, uh, I almost said shulk, <laughs> cloud is like holding his head in agony slowly in the background? Mm, yeah. It's like end of disc two. I, it's on the tip of my brain, but I cannot... I cannot mm, no get worries. it, but yes, I, I know what you're talking about. That's that's a whole nother discussion of... It, it, ex- actually, the same thing is happening in this scene as what happened to me in Final Fantasy VII. Because when my first playthrough of Final Fantasy VII happened, I straight up thought that in the flashback with 
uh, Sephiroth and Nibelheim. Sephiroth stabs Cloud, throws him into a pit, etc. Mm-hmm. I thought that 100% the person noticed Cloud Strife is a dead human being after that scene. And you've been playing as just somebody that was made to look like him after that. Mm. But since then, in materials released after the fact they've since retconned that or changed that or expounded upon the fact that like no cloud survived floated through the live stream and hojo just implanted false memories repaired him and it's still you're still cloud you know you're still that kid that grew up and wanted to be a soldier but on my original playthrough when final fantasy 7 was the only final fantasy 7 material out in their world i thought that cloud Strife died when sephiroth stabbed him and then got thrown off the bridge right now in this scene dixon's assertion i feel like shulk never existed monado just kind of became a boy and like slipped his way into society while he was trying to do shit but they walked that back over the course of saying well no there was a shulk there was an actual boy named shulk the monado just took his energy and slept in his body and he's in there so it's it's kind of waffling back and forth i've got both vibes of like shulk never existed to begin with and i also got vibes of like no he did he just was like used after that point so i'm still unclear on that i don't know if i should be if the game's intentionally vague or if i'm just not it maybe it's just too much exposition all at once to really digest accurately (laughs) it really is and it begs the question okay shulk never existed well who is this little child lying down you know unconscious in front of the monado Mm -hmm. monado sleeping place do we just make humans do giants make automatons humans i have no idea not that i can tell from any other part of this uh of the story yeah all in all what i'll say is you and i've been predicting dixon bad guy for quite a while i think that this was all kind of set up pretty good i think it's a good revelation it's not necessarily like a plot twist or a rug pull like sometimes series just pull stuff completely out of their ass for shock value and this was something i kind of had hinted at and seen coming and felt very deliberately in the dialogue that Dixon was questionable. So overall, I find the explanation believable and satisfying for the most part. We just have extra questions. I'm not like questioning the validity of everything that's happened so far. Melia wonders why use Shulk at all for to be this particular vessel. And what we're learning now is that all visions and Monado skills are all here Thanks to Lord Zanza. He's saying he's organized everything all the way from the beginning. And he's saying it here as well. Anytime we saved a life, anytime we destroyed somebody, it was all in the effort of getting at this point. It was all part of the plan. Everything has always been part of the plan. Thanks to Lord Zanza. Melia throws herself at Dixon, but then he deflects and pushes her away, then pins her to the ground by her neck with the barrel of his rifle. And he's, and then he says, well, we're just getting to the best part. As if this apotheosis wasn't like the best part. If you're lord and savior and cult leader i don't even know does an authentic apotheosis and an authentic transition into godhood you would call that a pretty good day but dixon says the best is yet to come we're not done here nate no we're not i I don't know that we've correctly like put the put out there that essentially that shulk's parents shulk and everything were drained of their life force to create the golden shulk that then would then live inside of shulk so mm. there's this question of like if the monado itself is so dangerous and it's in this tower that's locked away by hyentia 
why weren't they guarding Ose Tower? Because we've seen that like people of all races have been like casually exploring Valak on expeditions. It's dangerous esque, but there have been people that come and go from there. Namely, there are Nopon who have business ventures out in the area and are concerned about ecological balance. Mm. You would think you would have this place on like 24 hour lockdown to where a couple random people in parkas and a small child wouldn't be able to stumble upon it right mm-hmm. it, it was behind that runic door but they opened it they knew the code <clears throat> yeah so that's that's about my only question is you know if this thing is so dangerous that it could unravel everything and suck people's souls into it like maybe you want to put a couple extra runes on that door yes the best part is the master plan Apotheosis is not the master plan. This is the master plan. All life born from me must be returned to me. All must be restored to its former order. It is from me that all life is born. It lives only for me. And it shall be returned. This is the destruction and recreation of the world. We're going to resorb all the bionic material on Bionis and then become reborn again. The universe is going to collapse and then Big Bang again. The Titans are going to be recreated again, or at least one of them. We're talking a a comprehensive shift in the order of the universe, which is going to destroy all life on Bionis. That's Shulk and all of his friends and everybody we met along the way, all the cute no-pons, the trees, the antholes. They're all going bye-bye. We don't want this, even though... Lord Zanza is telling us this is just the way it is. To me, I, it almost feels like Mechanis is outside of that cycle. It's so deliberate that Bionis is a organic being that you could picture being part of that bubbly, oozy, primordial process of creation of like breaking things down into energy and reconstructing them. Whereas Mechanis seems like a product of engineers sitting in a hangar somewhere piecing together metal rivets, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if when he says this, that Mechanis is outside of that cycle, and maybe that's the reason why it needed to be destroyed, or that's the reason why it was created in the first place, was to be like a Trojan horse, like, let's be friends, Bionis, but I'm going to secretly sit here and make sure you don't do your reset the whole world thing. I don't know. That's the question I have is when he refers to the world, we're still left in this vague place of, are you talking about Bionis? Are you talking about Bionis and Mechanis because they form a kind of coexistent ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Or are you talking about both of them and the giant blue sphere on which they stand on? I'm unclear on that. I don't know. That's a good question. So we'll see. Yeah. I I like your poll about Mechanis' purpose being to interfere with the sort of of recreation of the world assuming that the world is you know inclusive of the world that the two titans stand on that does play into some of the themes that i've learned about in the xenosaga podcast I've, I've been listening to at state of the arc where there is this concept of eternal recurrence and that means that the universe is regularly expanding and then contracting and then 
just then uh, destroying and then reforming and exploding all over again. And uh, farther into episodes two or three, there are forces in the universe that are driving a wrench into the eternal recurrence on purpose. And so assuming that this theory carries water here, that Maybe Mechanus is, is that same sort of wrench driving it into um, Lord Zanza's MO of cyclical creation and destruction. And there is that encouragement from Arglis to Egil saying, hey, our children are going to grow up and leave this world. And so that would be a bunch of people exiting the predetermined cycle, the natural order. They would be, if the existence to always return to Bionis and reset and reorganize and reform, if that's the religion by which everything exists, they would all be committing blasphemy me they would be sinners of the highest order to just leave and say no i don't want to be part of the cycle so maybe that's a factor too of argus is this wonderful leader agil's a friend he's agreeing but they've just postulated on the greatest sin that any beings of bionis could ever consider which is to not be part of the grand design interesting fleeing the grand design they want to go to outer space to escape the the wrath of their creator and populate other planets they are sperm in space if you hold the like traditional religious views there's this idea that hell is an actual realm on earth somewhere by old like medieval standards right it's like what happens when you go to mars does mars have its own hell we're getting into doom territory here <laughs> i think i'm correct on that that there's like some mixing of both hell and mars itself in doom i don't know how the lore evolves over the titles but in the originals there are portals to hell on mars gotcha so yeah that, that begs that question of like if you exit the cycle of rebirth and life with bionis what else is there out there for you can you start anew can you just be human or be a hom and not have to worry about who you serve <laughs> yeah sorry all right let's go all right so we're still getting to the best part here because we ain't done yet bionis comes alive the first order of business is pulling that wrench out of the eternal recurrence system and that is mechanis itself lord zanza doesn't need a cockpit and apparatus to operate the titan in the same way that egil or manith um uses to to uh control mechanis lord zanza's got a remote he can operate this titan remotely from here within the mechanis core which is quite a swagalicious move <laughs> anyways egil is pumped to rematch Zanza and swings his sword, um, th th which swings the Mechanis' sword, which Bionis deflects with a rising arm block. It's quite spectacular. You can see it. As the two scuffle with one another in close proximity in the Mechanis' core room, their actions are translating out into the world as these enormous titans are actually actively engaged in a fight again. It's pretty amazing. My first exposure to this kind of concept was G Gundam. They had taken the Gundam series in a place where it was no longer like kids piloting them via a, a chair and levers and handles and things, but it was actually a martial arts competition where people would just stand inside their Gundam and whatever actions their physical body would take, the Gundam would take. So you'd see these scenes of cutting from a, a heroic character punching another heroic character and then it would flash to the same action happening between Gundams in the outside 
world and it was pretty amazing at the time the early 90s to see something like that this scene the way they execute this is impeccable as well they show like a shot from the cockpit of Egil's sword being severed by Zanza's Monado upgraded Monado 3, 4, 9 who the hell knows at this point Sure, slicing Egil's sword in half and at the same time the Bionis does the exact same thing slices the entire Mechanis sword in half again another zone that I'm pretty sure I can't revisit anymore maybe it's just New Game Plus I need to find all those missing items I didn't register yet oh shame on you playthrough number 2 incoming oh Oh god (laughs) sorry 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 right so mechanis is vulnerable in this state a great beam of light slices through the mechanis core we're all in like we're in the sword enters the room the titan sword cleaves through the room shearing off mechanis's goddamn head eggle is still in the apparatus like he didn't cut off eggle's head eggle's still in there but he's exposed to the environment Vinaya wails for her brother. In that moment, I kind of thought that Egil might have died, but he's still there. Super Shulk is still espousing philosophy about himself. All life is mine and shall be returned to me. He raises his sword high, and then, of course, Bionis t- does too, as, an, as if we're going to do a two-handed downward swing. And Fiora's soul transfer crystal glows. And in a flash, she's in the air, parrying, floating God Shulk's blow, which stays Bionis's killing blow in mid-swing. I have written uh, Faded, Abel, Monado, Zanza, Shulk versus Maineth, Fiora, Mechanis. <laughs> two gods made flesh locked in a parry with the fate of two worlds in the balance. Maineth talks to Lord Zanza from one origin of all life entity to another, saying, uh, we did create these entities on our Titan bodies, but their lives are theirs to control. Um, Maineth is weighing in on the philosophical conversation. Are they there for us to you know, be band-aids and reintegrate into our bodies again, or can they be their own entities? She's vouching for us. Makes me think, does my son Theodore exist just to be a healer in my inevitable World of Warcraft party that I craft for him and I'm the tank and I say, hey, we're going to this dungeon tonight. You're healing whether you like it or not. That's just the way it is, buddy. Or do I want to see him roll whatever he wants to roll, play whatever he wants to play, and just be there as a loving, fatherly damage soaker to accomplish whatever tasks he is acquired. What would Zanza say? Well, we know what he would say, but... He would say, you're here to heal me to accomplish my goals. I'm fucking Zanza. Whereas Maynath would say, hey, I'm just here to have a good time. It's all good. Zanza says Maynath has found her Monado, referring to her own weapon, which, if you're using the Monado analogy, is also the will of all mecha life on Mechanis. Now, in the previous chapter, we were compelled to complete a surprise quest in which we upgraded Fiora's weapons, and unceremoniously, was that the Mechanis Monado? I don't think so. It seems like a this cutscene is going to play out that way regardless of whether I did that quest or not. Yeah, right. It's too integral to the events happening. It's not just an extra little dialogue you throw in there for fun. Sure. Maynard stands up for all by honest life saying, if you think only your life is valid, then I stand for everybody else. I will teach you the strength of their will to exist. I will teach you the strength of their will to resist. It's a 1v1 boss fight between Fiora, Maynath, and Lord Zanza Shalk. God Shalk. And that's indicative of a true 
messianic character because Maynith is not only fighting for her own children, but she's also sacrificially giving herself for the children of her enemies. That's kind of the height of the messianic experience is to have somebody that is, will go to the lengths of defending all beings, all sides, all perspectives from imminent doom. Mm-hmm. The Mecca Madonna. In the fight, Zanza has quotes like, is that all you've got? And you're a pathetic excuse for a god. I love it. I thought that was great. I deal about 20% of his health before we're back in cutscene land, and this fight was completely inconsequential. This is not gameplay. In these series, there's always like a, a big bad sorcerer or some crazy guy who's like, I am gonna become a god. And it's like, no, you're actually gonna become like a demigod or like maybe just a super villain because like his powers and her powers still seem pretty limited it seems like they need to be plugged into their giant body mm-hmm. in order to do what they really need to do now granted zanza can control the bionis from here but it's like if you were god you would just sneeze and these people would cease to exist but when you're becoming a demigod you don't say i'm becoming a demigod you say I'm becoming a god because if you say you're becoming a demigod, well, it kind of begs the question, well, what kind of god is that? It's like it's like a bad Monty Python skit. Like, <laughs> I'm becoming a demigod. A demigod? Is that like a half god? No, it's a powerful god, but not quite god. <laughs> I agree. It's like... <laughs> Fake it till you make it, you know? You might as well just go full God. And then when people start questioning, you'd be like, shut up. (laughs) It also reminds me of the first Avengers where Loki, who is a Asgardian God, is sitting there spouting off his speech and Hulk just slams the shit out of him and responds with puny God. (laughs) Puny God. Once we're out of the fight, Egil watches Maynith and Lord Zanza do Advent Children style in-air fighting with one another. Lord Zanza equates Homs to bacteria just clinging to his body, which is interesting because that makes Shulk just dead bacteria now. He's, um, this is where I'm seeing kind of cracks in Lord Zanza's plan. He's so self-assured that I just, all of this philosophizing he's spouting, I, I'm not convinced that it's all true. It reminds me of the philosophizing that the Gazel ministry would spout in Xenogears where they say a lot of prophetic badass shit but at the end of the day they're just wrong and I think that Lord Zanzo might be just wrong because Homs are not just bacteria clinging to his body isn't it like your blood or your oxygen like how can this guy get it so wrong his head's up his own ass with (laughs) how mighty he is and he's taking for granted like what the value of these things on his body when's the last time you had some chicken sauce on your kitchen counter when's the last time that chicken sauce rose up and put you in prison for ten thousand years tyler i think it's a little bit more than bacteria so zanza fires uh light energy at shulk and fiora races to protect him which she does successfully super shulk says face me like a god and say goodbye to your putrid friends he fires another more extreme x-shaped beam of light at shulk which maineth deflects by literally separating from fiora's body in the same way that shulk and zanza did we can see maineth's physical form now nate i bet you love this hey a dark queen with black filigree tattoos on her forehead and cheeks emerges out of fiora beautiful golden eyes slim waist flowing black dress with 
crooked light blue lightning bolt patterns on her dress. She deflects the beam, glows red, and I notice she has real hair too. Like, um, Vinaya didn't have real hair, I don't think. Um, but this one does. She's extremely Hom-like in this moment. Yes, she has a Hom-like skin tone, Hom-like eyes, and she's basically a Hom. So we've had a lot of theories debunked in the last 45 minutes of us playing this game of ours, but we've also had a lot of theories confirmed. And one theory that I'm still going to, you know, you can go through what was confirmed and what wasn't on your own. One thing that I'm still leaning into is that before all of this, there were actually just like two regular human people that had giant Gundams and then something happened to them and the ether, the machines, the the big, the biological Gundam and the mechanical Gundam became sentient to some degree or something. I don't know. But this definitely, the Machina people are a creation of Mechanus, but Maynith predates the Mechanus in my opinion. She is not a product of it in the slightest because she is pretty much a human person. Mm-hmm. I I can believe that. I hadn't thought about that. Did she exist before Mechanus? Yeah, that that might be. Why is her representation so non-mechanical? I really couldn't say. She's only uh, Machina-like in her attire, but her body is completely... I'm like, yeah. We can go to like a Abel slash Ellie place here, in my opinion, of there there was something that happened and there were just two regular people that set upon these events that eventually would result in the Titans existing. That's my take on it. That's interesting. Oh, I'd love to see the, the rest of that play out. Is there a uh, Ultimania or what was it called for Xenogears? Perfect Works. Perfect Works. Is that out there somewhere for this game, I wonder, where we get all of those explanations of causality and the six episodes that weren't put in the game? I feel like if it existed, we would have known that by now. Or maybe because of the budget and the fact that Monolith Soft is fully supported, we are gradually getting those games and we just don't know it yet because we haven't played two or three. So we'll see. We'll see. Vinaya is holding the energy beam in place, struggling with it like you're parrying, like sword on sword, leaning into it, the blade, airing against it. She says, the world belongs to you all. Create a world you have no need for gods. And she looks down on Egil in this moment. And Egil looks back. And what goes unsaid in this look is that Maynith concedes to Egil that there was a nugget of truth in Egil's philosophy that she agreed with. Because that's what Egil was espousing. You have no need for gods. And he was lashing at lashing out at um, Maynith about that. But Maynith feels the same way, although her role is more Messiah-like. The energy beam dissipates, and Maynith disappears, leaving behind her Makanis Monado daggers floating in the air. The Yalda bro reaches out for them, but Zanza snatches them, and he has both of these weapons now and disappears. Your analysis there on her. Love it. Thank you. Zanza flies off with both. He's got the Monado 9, and then he's got the Maynith Monado 6 as well. So he's uh, he's pretty kitted out at the moment. He's got best in slot dual wielding. <laughs> <laughs> Dual wielding best in slots. Jeez. I'm from from two top tier raids of the expansion. Good God. He's a fear warrior because he is currently using Titan's grip. Yes. <laughs> More ways than one. Yes, exactly. We see Zanza return to Bionis just instantaneously to Prison Isle. Nate, you were fucking right. Yeah. And the Prison Isle proceeds to dive down into the sea, seemingly entering either like the lower neck 
neck or head of Bionis. So I think Prison Isle, we talked about it, how it was much more raw in its design and its contents. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the cockpit of Bionis. Yeah, I think so too. You called it. It felt right then and it, we'll see if it plays out that way. But I'm getting a Final Dungeon vibe from it now too because we talked about how there was it was non-tent before, but they were just using those assets as like a, a subtle little tease. So I'm getting mm-hmm. that we're going back there. Mm-hmm. And also, I think we're going to get there through the lung because we also had the unused lung section of Bionis before. Yes. So they're going to smash together those two places. We're going to go up the lung, in through the throat, and that cockpit is going to be in the head somewhere. Mm-hmm. Bada bing, bada boop, you got a final dungeon. Bada bing, bada boom. When Prison Island plunges beneath the waves, we see High Entius writhing around on the ground in Alchemoth, green energy flashing all around them. I'm wondering is Lord Zanza reclaiming his ether? We cut away from these unhappy Hyentias before the next thing happens. Back on Mechanus, we watch Egil as he does the death apology to Vinaya. Um, hold on. Was he mortally wounded when the head got shorn off? Uh, yeah, I have it in my notes that I didn't actually know whether he survived that. So this is actually confirmation for me in this clip that he survived mm. the head short off. But I think the implication is he gave everything he had in that fight so he's either incredibly wounded or just his reserves of energy are exhausted mm-hmm. some some sort of death condition for a machina person mm-hmm. he says uh, i too have something i must do a final wish trusted to me by lady Maynith. they don't say what it is shulk can still be saved do not let the last glimmer of hope be extinguished the gang picks up fiora and the soul transfer crystal is still shimmering, and Dunbin sort of takes charge in this moment. By the way, where did Dixon go? Hard stop. Dixon disappears after the boss fight. He's nowhere to be seen from here on out until, well, you know, he comes back. He's got that cool Game of Thrones final season power where he can just warp all over the world without cause. Yes, he did. He did warp away. We, yeah, we have a lot of questions about him. It's time to flee Makanis. So, yeah, after we get our admission from Egil, there's an implication that the whole place is coming down. Makanis is on its last leg here. And the music that it's playing is threatening and imposing. Like, picture that sequence of escaping a derelict or exploding base in Metroid at the last minute, right? Nate, are you feeling okay? You might want to get your hearing checked. This is the correct song. And so the game is telling me we got to get to junks, we got to hoof it, whatever. But there's no blaring red alarm, no pieces of things dropping in the distance, no explosions, no haywire robots for us to encounter or things like going apeshit. And really, like, no other gameplay than running back to the objective of junks with this, like, overly threatening song playing. So it's not working for me. It's the equivalent of, like, phoning it in on a emergency situation. You're right. They didn't even throw in a digital display of a timer arbitrarily counting down from some number that you're going to get to Junks well in advance of zero. (laughs) Board Junks and Zanza is swinging at Junks in the air while we are fleeing Makanas. This is a Titan's sword crashing through the atmosphere, swatting at a fly. Now, I would use the broad end of the Monado to swat this fly. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Um, But he doesn't. No, he's he's using the razor's edge to, to cut the fly out of the air. 
doesn't hit us just yet. I'll say quick. Again, swiping at a fly with a giant sword is is definitely demigod energy and not god energy. <laughs> Mechanus blocks the sword with his hand, which is sheared off by the energy sword. Next, Mechanus grapples Zanza at the waist with its other arm, which Bionis fucking karate chops in half. <laughs> It's amazing. Hey, bonus, we have a new fallen arm zone added to the game, right? We do. Yes. It's we have to wait 10,000 years before it becomes overgrown with the lush foliage that we're expecting from the other one. Expansion pack incoming. Mm -hmm. As Bionis raises its energy sword again, we can see its torso is a glow in green energy. That must mean that the Bionis interior is very active now. The swing comes down on Makanis's shoulder, cutting through the shoulder deep, deep into the torso. Makanis falls to its knees, begins to glow with light, including a towering column of white light with a bulb at the top, reminiscent of when an angel dies in Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I feel like an explosion is due next, but it never comes. What happened to Makanis? Yeah, and not so bonus. It looks like all of those Mechanus zones are gone now. It's completely <laughs> gone. Bye-bye. I'll never get a chance to down uh, Magnificent Michael or whatever the hell that giant spider's name was. I forget. I want to say, like, Glorious Jerome, but I know that's wrong. There is a Glorious Jerome in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm going with Magnificent Michael. Ma oh, Magnificent. But that's not it, but it's what I'm going to call him from now on. Well, Nate, the point I was making a minute ago is that we don't see anything happen to Makanis. We, we see all the telltale signs from all the other media, all the other science fiction we've consumed in our life, that the next thing that happens is a comprehensive critical failure explosion that blows the thing apart. But it never comes. You might be able to come back and pick up that final mecha dandelion. Look forward to that. Maybe the zones are even slightly redesigned, but I do not have that expectation. That would be rad. It's all fallen arm now. We zoom to Junks and we watch what happened to Makanis. That is, we don't see what happened. Is it crumpled on the ground? Did it evaporate? What's with the giant column of light? And then Ryan points into the distance and says, what's that cloud? It's a swarm of telethianate. Many varieties. A colossal whale-like telethia passes over Junks and Dixon leaps down from it. He was riding this thing and leaps down onto the deck of Junks. And I note in this moment, another jump from a moving airborne vehicle, Dixon. Nice. He's a fan of the X Games moments. Yes. He says we're all going to the Bionis nice and quietly, whether we like it or not, as if we'll be imprisoned there or, I don't know, liquidated into ether. We plead with Dixon in the same way we plead with Nemesis Face. That is fruitfully, pathetically. I hate this. They even kind of drop like, hey, are you being mind controlled? Are you okay, Dixon? Can, do we just need to go talk it out or something? And he assures them like, hey, dumbasses. I've always been this guy right here, like, that's fucking with you. And he even name drops himself that he is Dixon of the Trinity. So seemingly there's a yet another giant out there somewhere doing his thing, or maybe he's dead, or we don't know. But mm -hmm. Dixon is part of three figures, so there's probably Dixon, Arglis, and then somebody else. This is, again, that, that moment where the party stupidly appeals to Dixon's sense of whatever this is another example that what i talked about at the beginning was exposition bait because we need to get a little explanation if you were confused that dixon might be mind controlled by zanza or something 
Let's just get some exposition out there that says he wasn't. He's really, really, really the bad guy. Dixon of the Trinity. Could there only ever have been three giants and the third one is in the tomb that you visited that I haven't? There's also like a giant thing in Valak Mountain that's like a level 100 enemy. Is it a giant? Well, they're they're certainly pretty fucking big. Uh, There's a door to like a giant facility that I can't get to because it's guarded by a level 100 elite. Mm. Almost like the uh, Ultima weapon situation. Yeah. Like oh, great. bonus endgame. Maybe. After he says he is Dixon of the Trinity, we fight him. Wait, we don't fight him. Where is Dixon? He's disappeared again. We're fighting the whale Telethia instead. A Surini Telethia? It vomits ether lasers and dive bombs us with its giant body. False fight again. Do you want to comment on the fight? Nope. It's another unwinnable fight. I'm just like, this is Xenogears this too. But it's got more blocking. I have to say there's more. You're right. You're right. There's no one postulating in front of a JPEG for sure. Yes. There is action and there are characters running around the screen and things going on. But but I do know what you mean. And it makes you wonder how much of a bad rap Xeno Gears gets in comparison to what we're experiencing here. Now, this is like the dark hour of midnight chapter. Just, even so... We're not playing very much. It's Yes, it's a false fight again. We're meant to lose again, unless we can try to win, but who knows? Once the fight is over, Dixon taunts Dunbin recalling what a great mentor or teammate he was to him. Really trying to suck every last bit of joy from my teammates here. He's delighting and fooling everybody to an extent that it's feeling kind of petty to me. He's going from, oh, this master stroke was so clever to na-na-na-boo-boo. It also begs the question, the assault on the Mechanist sword a year ago. Dixon mentions like victories and sucking back drinks and stuff. Has Dixon just been like in a 10,000 year long holding pattern? Like, I got nothing else to do. I guess I'll just do some wars. I guess I'll just do this. Go get drunk again because literally I'm just waiting for Lord Zanza to come back. That's a great question. What do giants do in their spare time besides pump iron and uh, wax their beards? So in the midst of the assault, that as, as all hope seems lost, uh, Callian arrives to rescue us in his ship squadron of Havris ships. The party uh, yells up to Callian saying, hey, Dixon's a traitor. He's fucking everything up. He killed Shulk. Callian responds in support of Melia and our people. He is not a traitor. He's still a good guy, just as we suspected. He, he threatens Dixon saying, Dixon's troop is no match for the Havris squad. Oh yeah, we've got him. Yeah, Dixon says otherwise and implores Callian to clean house, name dropping Larithia. So we get our official confirmation that even though she didn't like Dixon, Larithia is going to stay a bad guy in this circumstance. They're in alliance. The following proclamation is uh, pure gold. If you've paid attention to some of the things I've said over the course of this podcast, you can go watch the scene yourself if you like. The Havris Squadron was all a plant. They were seemingly created for the assault on Galahad Fortress, but they have a second, more sinister purpose. And it brings into light the purpose of the High Antia. They were seemingly created as a defense mechanism for Bionis. Their genes will transform them when the time comes for their use. And so the Havris explode ether reserves into all of the High Antia piloting them which turns them into Telethia. <laughs> what do you get if you cross high concentrations of ether with high entia? N- no, you wouldn't. Lorothea! Awaken, my darling pets! 
Oh man. Oh my god, I just had a thought. That army of Telethia that Dixon rode in towards Junkson, that could have been the population of Alchemoth. Yeah, definitely. It also brings forth the question all of the Telethia we've encountered so far, going back to Alvis having one he's just chilling with. Was that some little high entity of boy that he just like, hey, your life is worthless. I'm going to make you my personal Telethia. Zap. Maybe. Maybe. There's other questions I have about Alvis coming from this chapter that we'll circle back on. But this, for me, gives huge confirmation on the Emperor's goal of diluting his people's blood with Ham's blood. The whole second consort thing that he was doing. And then the ancient tomb that analyzed Ham's percentage as a positive factor to who they were and not a negative. This factor kind of, you don't really, I would expect the game at some point to give some sort of overbearing exposition thing here but you don't really need it you can read into everything on this uh that going back thousands of years the high antia kings and leaders emperors i should say um were concerned with this fact that it's like we are just tools we do not want to be just tools we want to be free from zanza's curse or the curse of the bionis to just be these weapons and so they had this campaign to dilute their blood and become mortal, essentially. And with that, they had a, they had a whole system of judging who was worthy based on how not high entia they were. And that, that's pretty cool. But now we know that the Bionite order existed to kind of a, as a people that their religion was like, no, we were made for this purpose and we want to keep that purpose. We want to remain worshiping the Bionis because there will be some sort of payoff or glory for us in doing that which i don't know what it is i don't know what you think is going to happen if you become a telethia what fulfillment that's going to give you but um there was definitely a sect of people that that was their purpose and we now know that little rithia was the one pulling those puppet strings so we'll see what she has in store for herself mm-hmm. because she didn't transform in the ether explosions that's right wonder why that is goodness gracious could she be a a giant could she Larithia is in the Bionite Order, but I wonder if Dixon is in it too. I wonder if he perhaps leads the Bionite Order or if he's simply a member or or a shadow component of it. Part of its cabal. I have no idea. Anyways, Larithia plays her hand. She begins glowing green and so too do all the Havris. I suppose they're powered by ether. They've got ether in the gas tank. I think they were specifically designed for this purpose from the start. Oh, they were, yes. Yeah, because we have that sequence where Larithia and Alvis were doing the research on the liquid that could break down Bionis materials, right? Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, we're definitely going to be able to put this to use. Load up all of our people into these units, and then they will do their thing and transform all of us. Right. They integrate into their Havris vehicles. These Hyentias, upon, you know, Larithia's command, begin liquidating into a green primordial soup and then turn into Lethias, these divine dragon monsters. Kallian inclusive. Yeah, he becomes the biggest, like, weirdest of all of them. Mm. But he maintains his, like, head and shoulders. (laughs) He doesn't let his head transform. You're right. Through sheer power of will. Through sheer power of will, he is resisting is genetic fate genetic duty depending on who you ask here this is horrifying by the way this is this is stomach turning we've lost all of our allies never felt more more alone 
in the entire adventure than now. And, and it's another example of something I've talked about before, which is like feelings over science or whatever. Like everyone else gets fucking transformed immediately, but Callian's got really strong feelings, so he doesn't get transformed just yet. No, he doesn't. Dixon compels the Callian Telethia F mutant to kill his sister, but he's resisting the order, resisting the mutation. He still has control of the Havris. He's integrating into and uses it to smash as many Telethias as he can before he loses control, aiming for Dixon's whale first. Lorithia tells the Telethia army to destroy the Callian Telethia, and finally Callian crashes into Dixon's whale and a huge ball of white energy engulfs the battlefield. Melia cries out for her brother, fade to white. End of chapter. End of chapter. Very similar to the explosion with Gadult. A lot of fade to white chapter endings. Mm-hmm. So I have some questions if we can entertain that for just a moment. I've got questions. So first question. If Shulk had killed Egil and Dixon not intervened, were we just going to go back to the status quo for another 500,000 years or whatever? Was Bionis not meant to awaken here? Because if Shulk just killed him then Mechanus wouldn't be a threat and then Bionis wouldn't have to do anything or would Dixon still have summoned Zanza after the act was done Mm. Zanza could have let Shulk do the courtesy of returning his corporeal body back to the other Titan to save him the trouble of teleporting over to... <laughs> I don't Save him the trouble of the instant teleport? Yeah, I don't know. We spoke about this the last time. Lorithia and Dicko are definitely on the same side. Why does she despise him in her talks with Alvis? Was this like a performative bluff to throw off Alvis? I don't know if Alvis is truly aligned with them, but is Alvis our third giant that we don't... Is he secretly one of them as well? Mm. The only thing is... The ringer giant. The entire time, Alvis has been talking to us about changing fate and do as you will, find your Monado, etc. So the question is, does he really actually want that to happen? Does he have a changeable fate belief system in opposition to Zanza? Or is that all like, again, a performative bluff to make you feel like you can change things and you're actually playing right into Zanza's hand the whole time. There's a lot of confirmations of my earlier theories where the game was telling you you're in control and you're actually not in control. You're playing by their tune the entire time. So that's cool. But Alvis is still kind of out in the wind for me on what his purpose is. Yeah, these mysterious characters this chapter are all playing their hands, except Alvis. So I expect he is going to play his, perhaps in the first few scenes of the following chapter. I've not played ahead into the to, to start off chapter 17 here, um, but I expect that he's going to have some answers for us. I'm, I'm feeling like since everybody's turned on us, except for Alvis, that he might actually have the answers. He might have the solutions for us. He might actually actually be a good guy. Mm, I don't know, man. He's the only hint of the Zohar type power in this game on his necklace. That's the only one little hint we've seen of that type of thing. Any everything else is Monado and the Ether, but Alvis has that little pendant that looks like something that is like a legacy item from the other game. So I want to see if they mm-hmm. come up with an explanation of what's going on there. I find it funny I'm turning heel on Alvis. You're remaining skeptical, but I'm kind of like, my God, you might have the solution after all. Yeah, he might. Um he might. do so the my last question is Telethia had mind reading 
reading powers or they could see what you're doing beforehand is this an extension of zanza's fate capabilities like zanza can see fate and manipulate fate were were they designed like they're a bionis defense mechanism does the bionis have the ability to you would think because the bionis is zanza he has the ability to see things that's interesting so do the 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 beings that hyanta become have that ability the same way as zanza does like maybe a fraction of the power let me ask you this do they anticipate all actions or just the actions of the Monado sword? Ah, that's a good question. I have to think about that. Right. <laughs> but it, there's a whole thing of the, if you look at the um, prison island, there were statues of dino beasts. And people were saying like, well, that looks like a more like ancient Telethia, ancient Hyantia. So we're getting confirmation of why that's the case in this explanation. But it also is, again, suggestive of an era where like, there's previous versions of this. So I wonder if Prison Island is from a previous cycle. Mm. If the Bionis is all about resetting cycles, it's like how many resets has the Bionis been through? Because And does Prison Island predate a reset? It's on the inside. It's protected from all of the reconfiguration and the whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. There's some hints there. Prison Isle is just a place completely set apart from everything else. It doesn't look like anything else. So that's where I'm leaning on that we might get a little bit of more information on what's going on there soon i have a thought about prison island too do you remember the first time we quote unquote met alvis it was in a sepia toned flashback forward god knows what anymore in which alvis is speaking to shulk he's at the opposite end of the prison island bridge and there's soot flying around in the air we thought that might be a flash forward and i don't remember Alvis and Shulk having that conversation during the Prison Island chapter, which makes me wonder if this is a twist on a twist, and if that meeting with Alvis is actually going to be reproduced in the final chapter here when we perhaps inevitably return to Prison Island. You're on an amazing thread right there. I love it. I have no idea. I, I don't really even remember the subject of the conversation, but if Alvis is going to play his hand, and if we're headed to Prison Island, and there was never another vision that was quite like that, maybe it's a really deep-seated thing here. Another comment I wanted to make, I don't believe that the Hyantias were dino beasts. I think the devil put the dino beasts here. <laughs> I like that. It's perfect. 2,000 years ago, not 10,000 years ago. I think you're, to comment back on your flash forward Alvis thing, I think you're right on the money that Alvis is the key because that conversation even back then was, do you want to change it? Do you want to change how things happen? He's planting seeds about changing fate. Again, I th- I'm going to go right here. This is my official call. I think he's the anti-Zanza and maybe maybe he's a part of the whole system and he's existed to be serving that, but he's kind of weaving his own little nuggets. Mm-hmm. All right, we can slice it off here. We've got a hell of a chapter ahead of us. No idea where we're headed. Can't wait to find out. I- agreed, definitely. And fuck Dixon. Yeah, I shaved. <laughs> <laughs> Shaved in protest. Oh, hold on. Last comment. Is Shulk dead? What are we going to do with him? Is he going to get his own soul transfer crystal from God knows who? Do we bring him back to life a la Chrono Trigger? I was going to say he's Chrono dead. Chrono, yeah. he's. <laughs> that's a fun state of being. He's Chrono dead. Fuck it. Fuck it, bucket. The fuck it, bucket. <laughs> fuck it, bucket. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions recorded on October 4th or 5th, 2022. Email us at Hero with a Thousand Potions at gmail.com. That's one zero 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 potions. We're also on Discord via a link that you can find on our podcast description. My name is Tyler. And I am Nate. You're a pathetic excuse for a god. Is that all you've got? Yeah. No, 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 no. But it's Bionis time. Back on Mechanis, we see ex- Correction. Actually, I said that correctly, but my brain was different. Lord Zanza doesn't need the Mechanis cock. (laughs) This is why we have two channels. (laughs) I don't know. He's still colossal whale like Dilethia that passes over Junks and and Jixon. (laughs) That's Junks and Dixon. I can keep going. Uh, I, I was kind of like thinking about doing an intru- uh, Trump impression. The many whelps handle it, but oh, sure, nah, sure, I can't. Sure. I, I'm just, I'm not in the right position to do an impersonation at this time. Of I can only do a good impersonation of one thing, and that's the Emperor from Star Wars. Reminds me of that old school Simpsons Halloween horror, Treehouse of Horror sketch with the, with the sea monkeys that become... Like worship Lisa. Anyways, you'll you'll have to drop that one. I am unfamiliar. I think I will just delete it. Okay. Um, right. So he <laughs> right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Porsche. Good God. <laughs> this has been a hip. <laughs> do we do a food <laughs> review podcast? <laughs> Hero a with a Thousand Portions. <laughs> <laughs> that's when we uh, that's, that's when that's when we review fruit ninja and um overcooked too and perfect yes love it okay i'm gonna do this again and not <laughs> oh god we're almost there i'll take us home i promise